0: Good evening. One miscellaneous announcement, which is that the final lecture in the spring series of the Friends of the Book Arts press lecture will be next Monday, and the speaker will be Charles Benson from Trinity College, Dublin, speaking on the Irish book trade in the first half of the 19th century. I hope that none of you will consider this afternoon's proceedings to be in any way a melancholy occasion. Gordon Ray said shortly after Alan Asif's death in early December 1986, his life was a success, and I think that's very much worth hanging on to. Alan Asif attended the Columbia University School of Library service on a part-time basis beginning in 1980 while working full-time in a non-professional capacity for the Columbia University Libraries. He received his master's degree in library science from SLS in 1983. Midway through the 1981-1982 academic year, the year in which he was a student in my descriptive bibliography classes. He successfully applied for the, for the professional position of cataloger at the Grolier Club. He began work at the club in March 1982, and he was there until his death in November 1986, at the age of 28. Early in 1987, Alan Ace's mother, Mrs. Zelda Erden, presented his library of books on books and printing to the Book Arts Press. Transported to Columbia through the good offices of Selby Kiefer and furnished with book plates, reading from the library of Alan Asif, the books were shelved in the press room down the hall in 502, where ever since they have been available to students in the various SLS rare book and related programs, archives, preservation, administration, and conservation, and where they enriched the press room's other book and realia collections. Since 1986, we've received a number of contributions and are still receiving them made in Alan Asop's memory to the Friends of the Book Arts Press, the SLS rare book program support group. The contributions came principally, but not entirely, from his fellow classmates, who were approached for this purpose by Isaac Gewirtz, also the class of 83. We used money thus received to buy additional books for which, as with all working libraries, there is a continuing need these furnished with book plates, reading, purchased through the Allen Asif Fund, the new books joined Asif's own library and the Press Room Collections already in 502. Now, the General School of Library Service Library, a division of the Columbia University Libraries and one floor above the floor that we're now on, is well stocked with books on bibliography, so well indeed that I doubt that there are any books in the Asif Collections which are not to be found on its shelves. But the ASUS books lead their own independent and very busy existence. A book such as Bamber Gascoigne's recent How to Identify Prints, for example, is most usefully used students routinely find when studying the prints themselves in the press room. Similarly, students routinely find when studying bookbinding history that one picture leads to another books in the ace of collections provide an opportunity for them to lay out half a dozen or more bookbinding books in the press room next to actual examples of leather and cloth bindings most of the books on the reading lists of the two descriptive bibliography courses that I teach may now be found in the press room collections where since I teach these courses in the press room itself they're immediately at hand they are used frequently both by students and by me both by both in and outside of class the Press Room collections are particularly useful during our annual Rare Book School, which in 1987 attracted more than 300 students in 24 courses. The pace in Rare Book School is intense, and instructors routinely asked to have certain books on their subject on hand in their classrooms. The SLS Library has always been generous in providing copies of the books needed, but having our own copies right on the fifth floor has enormously simplified Rare Book School logistics. Thus, we have many reasons to be grateful to Mrs. Airden for the gift of her son's books, and to Alan Aesop's classmates and others who made contributions to the friends of the Book Arts Press in his memory. And there is a list of these books, which you may have seen in 523, or can see there afterwards, uh, during the reception that follows the lecture this evening. There are also a great many students from this year's descriptive bibliography class in the room who will be at the reception I'm sure afterwards they smell food from a long distance my students Uh, and I am sure that they will support very strongly my observation as to the heavy use that these books do in fact get Robert Nykirk has a small presentation
1: I'm very glad to see so many of Alan's friends and colleagues here this evening. No one enjoyed bibliographical meetings and lectures such as this more than he did, especially those connected with the School of Library Service. He was a graduate of both Columbia College and SLS, and they were undoubtedly the two most important poles of his life. In considering a gift from the Grolier Club to the Library of the Book Arts Press on this occasion, the only possibility is our centennial book published in 1984. It is full of interesting essays by many members, but it is Allen's two superb contributions that make it a permanent work of reference, the complete list of Rollier Club exhibitions and the bibliography of its publications. This last is already cited as Asaph, and in this gathering and others like it, that is assuredly a kind of immortality.
0: Descriptive bibliography class ever seems to be quite the same as the year in which they graduated from SLS. Uh, Isaac is class of 83 formally, but class of 82 emotionally.
2: That's due to not handing in term papers on time. A few months after Alan's death, uh, during the course of conversations with Janet Baldwin, Sybilla Fraser, and Allison Riley, I was asked if any plans had been made to establish a memorial in Alan's name. Such an idea had occurred to me many times, but it had been shunted aside by the press of daily commitments, few of which, of course, were more important than honoring a dead friend. The book fund, which has been established with your assistance in Alan's name, and which was used to purchase some of the books exhibited in room 523, is the result of the affection and respect for Alan, as well as the sense of loss that was shared during those conversations and that was felt by all his friends and colleagues upon hearing of his death. You are aware of Alan's exemplary librarianship and of his contributions to the Grolier Club, but qualities of character are more important than professional skills and achievements. Alan, during all the years I knew him, had faced debilitating and often painful illness with humor and courage. Though I can recall him becoming exasperated with the limitations that his illness placed on his activities, I never heard a note of self-pity or bitterness in his voice. No doubt he sometimes experienced these emotions. It would have been highly unusual had he not, but he did not express them, and that is unusual enough. And though Alan certainly had the intelligence and acuteness of mind to form and express an accurate and unflattering judgment of others, and though he had the sensitivity to feel a slight, yet I have met few people more reluctant to criticize others regardless of justification. The same integrity was manifested in, in, which was manifested in Alan's personal life was evident in his professional life as well. His commitment to his profession was exemplary and his love of books apparent to anyone who knew him even slightly. The Book Arts Press was especially dear to him since it was a scene of his early training in rare book librarianship and because in it he found the resources which were to prove so helpful in his growth as an interpreter and guardian of the printed book. No memorial to Allen could be more fitting than the gift of books in his name to the Book Arts Press.
0: This afternoon, in my lecture, I wish to deal with the activities of those American book collectors who were living at any point during the period between 1876 and 1917, and to meditate on how and why books from the great English collections which came onto the market during this period tend to end up in American libraries subsequently. It may be useful to begin with a short historical summary of American book collecting during this period, and I apologize for telling those uh, already know more about the subject than I do, what I know. By 1876 the greater part of the libraries of the giants of Americana collecting had been formed in this country. Peter Force had already sold his massive accumulation of printed and manuscript materials to the Library of Congress. John Carter Brown had died in 1874 after a collecting career of more than 40 years. James Lennox, Brown's great rival for Americana Nuggets, had given his collection to the city of New York, built a library to house it on Fifth Avenue on the site of the present Frick Museum, and was thinking about providing public access to the books. The 1876 Menzies sale, primarily of Americana, realized more than $48,000, the highest total thus far received at an American book auction. George Brinley, with Force, Brown, and Lennox, perhaps the greatest collector of Americana of his day, had died in 1875 and his preeminent library would be auctioned off over the next several years, beginning in 1879. Lyman Draper was well along in his documenting of the American movement West with his relentless collecting efforts for the Wisconsin the Wisconsin Historical Society. In California Hubert Howe Bancroft was continuing to expand the scope of his enormous collections dealing with the North American Far West and Southwest. In 1876, for example, he absorbed most of the E. George Squire Library of newspapers, books, pamphlets, and manuscripts dealing with the history of Central America. American collectors probably dominated the international market in Americana by 1876, but they had a modest impact on most other collecting areas. There were, and had been, American collectors interested in materials other than Americana. William Mackenzie, for example, who collected French and English incunables, George Tickner, who had a splendid library of Spanish and Portuguese materials. Thomas Pennant Barden, whose 12,000-volume collection of English literature, especially Shakespeare, was described as the best of its kind in America by Horace Furness, the editor of the Shakespeare Variorum, And also William Menzies himself, whose preoccupation with Americana did not prevent him from collecting early printed books in Scottish literature. But the great push into areas besides Americana was just getting getting underway in this country in 1876. There There was an active American auction trade by 1876, and the tempo was increasing as older collecting patterns changed. As they continue to change, I hope you are all as enchanted as I was to read in the Times this morning that the world's record has just been set for the sale at auction of a cookie jar. Time was when American book collectors had tended either to, when American book collections had tended either to stay in the family or else be given or sold to institutions. The collections of James Logan, Thomas Prince, Isaiah Thomas, William McKenzie, Thomas Dowse, George Tickner, Peter Force, John Carter Brown, and James Lennox come to mind. But prices of old books began rising in this country in the 1860s and, after a dip during the early 1870s, continued to rise, sharply so, towards the end of the decade. American libraries were now worth more, and they tended increasingly to be sold rather than given away by deed or bequest. The American collectors who flourished in the final quarter of the 19th century, they composed a second generation of collectors in this country, were a more diverse lot than their mid-century countrymen and some of their names are still familiar, at least to American bibliographical ears today. Samuel Putnam Avery, Theodore Irwin, and Theodore lau Davini, born in the 1820s. Adolph Sutro, General Rush C. Hawkins, Joseph Drexel, E. Dwight Church, William Loring Andrews, Augustin Daly, and Robert Ho, born in the 1830s. General Brayton Ives, Edward Ayer, John Henry Wren, Frederick French, and Hamilton Cole, born in the 1840s and Eugene Field, William Arnold, and Abby Pope, born in the 1850s. This, the second great generation of American collectors, continued to collect Americana. Indeed, that field remained one of the two most widely collected areas, the other being English literature, throughout the 1876-1917 period. But rises in prices, both in America and Europe, encouraged collectors, even rich ones, to specialize. As did, for example, Edward Ayer, who assembled an important collection on the American Indian, which in 1910 became the foundation of the air collection at the Newberry Library in Chicago. Brayton Ives collected rare Americana, as well as important books over a broad range of European subjects. Early printed books, he owned a Gutenberg Bible, voyages and discoveries, first editions of classic texts, fine printing and famous printers, English literature, and so on, as well as illuminated manuscripts. He owned the great 15th century Pembroke Hours, bought at his sale in 1891 by someone whose collecting range was even broader than his, Robert Ho. Mrs. Abbey Pope was a high spot collector, celebrated especially in England as the owner of the 1485 Caxton Mallory, which she acquired at the Austerley Park sale in 1885, where, by the way, she paid two commissions, one of 10% to her agent B.F. Stevens to bid for the book and an additional commission of two-and-a-half percent to Quaritch not to bid on the book. When I asked Quaritches about this last month, they having kindly checked the figures for me, they said this was not a commission not to buy the book, it was simply a shared commission. There was no bid from the British uh, Museum Library for the book, despite what you may have read to the contrary. The British Museum was interested in the book if they, if they could get it for 900 pounds. It sold for more than twice that. General Hawkins put together an important collection of incunables designed to illustrate the spread of printing. His collection is now part of a memorial to his wife, Anne Mary Brown, in Providence. Samuel Putnam Avery collected fine bindings and books about bindings. He gave the latter to Columbia University in 1903. Hamilton Cole was an extra illustrator, interested as well in book illustration and books on books. He had a large Richard DeBury collection. The theatrical impresario, Augustin Daly, was a passionate collector and another extra illustrator of books dealing with the English and American stage. He also had a good Shakespeare collection. Theodore Irwin of Oswego, New York, had first-rate illuminated manuscripts and early English literature, again, especially Shakespeare. He sold his collection en bloc to J.P. Morgan in 1900. E. Dwight Church collected a relatively small number of very important books in the fields of American and English literature, taking Frederick Locker-Lamson's Rofant Library as his model. Indeed, he purchased, or his, indeed he purchased the Rofant Library in 1905, keeping what he wanted and then disposing of the duplicates. John Henry Wren collected contemporary English first editions, some of them rather more contemporary than was generally realized, as Carter and Pollard were later to point out. William H. Arnold specialized in 19th century American literature, long before it became fashionable. Frederick French of Boston collected modern fine printing. He had a complete set of Kelmscott press publications. As you can see from this brief catalog, the collecting interests of the American second generation, those whose collections began and prospered in the last three decades of the 19th century, were broad ones. Note how often English is opposed to American bell-latte recur as one of their areas of specialization. They were an anglophilic lot. It is interesting to contemplate from the vantage points of almost immediately subsequent collecting patterns what the second generation of American book collectors did, did not collect. The history of science and medicine, post-age of discovery, maps and atlases, industrial archaeology, 18th century English literature, domestic sciences and the useful arts, Judaica, children's books, living American writers, and new books about books. There are exceptions to all of those. Most of them were uninterested in non-splendid books, meat and potatoes items useful for their content rather rather than desirable for their rarity, primacy, or beauty they did not, by and large, assemble collections of books with any intention of reading them. Nor were some of the books they bought particularly readable in any event. Early Bibles, first editions of the ancient classics, early typography, early and generally obscure English literature, books in valuable bindings, large plate books, 19th century novels in their original fragile parts, products of the modern private press, and so on. American book collectors frequently bought books whose charm lay... Primarily in their rarity. Elizabethan drama, for example, including early plays whose literary importance was tertiary at best, or the obscure and ephemeral works of writers well known for other and better titles. They also bought books because of their beauty. Late 19th century American book collectors tended to be fussy about condition, unnecessarily so, in the view of Bernard Alfred Quaritch, who on his first business trip to New York in 1890 wrote home to his father in London, people are devilishly particular about condition of books here. An American preoccupation with condition was noted by W. Carew Hazlitt in his book The Book Collector, published in 1904. He said, the American customer grows more fastidious every day, adding that Americans even go so far as to return purchases, not answering the description in the auctioneer's catalog to their English commission agents. This preoccupation with commission with condition, had received fresh impetus at the end of the century, when there developed a growing interest in collecting 19th century books in original condition, as issued, in wrappers, boards, original cloth, or whatever, rather than rebound, however sumptuously. The number of book collectors in turn-of-the-century America was clearly on the increase. This is preeminently the age of collectors, wrote Henry Harper in 1904, and Carl Cannon, author of the standard history of American book collecting, called it the Golden Age, a period extending from the late 80s to the First World War, when a critical taste, maturity of judgment, and exact knowledge of books was typical of the leading collectors. One of the reasons for the increase in the number of book collectors toward the end of the century was simply that there there was more American money available for collecting. In the decade before and after 1900, the American rich grew rapidly richer, not only because of a rapidly expanding national economy, but also because their slice of the economic pie grew wider. In 1890, the richest families in America, the top 1.5%, received about 11% of the national income. By 1910, 20 years later, that same group was receiving nearly 20%. And in 1910, there was no income tax in America at all. Collectively, this group had a great deal of money to spend on books. There were also more books for them to buy, thanks in part to the large number of major sales of libraries taking place in England in the 1880s, enabled by sweeping changes in the laws governing the sale of entailed property. In particular, the Suttled Land Act of 1882, changes generally associated with the name of Hugh Cairns, later Lord Cairns. I would like to embark on an extended parenthesis on the Settled Land Act. Until recently, I had always vaguely assumed that before the 1880s, one could entail an estate, or any part of it, such as a library or art collection, to prevent its sale by one's heirs, whom one tended to distrust intense, who one tended to distrust intensely, if not actively dislike. <laughs> that the Settled Land Act abolished such entails and that certain noble and other landholding possessors of such entailed libraries and art collectors celebrated the changes in the law by disencumbering themselves of their books and pictures forthwith, often in order to take the proceeds to the races, gaming tables, and other resorts of society and leisure offered by the Gilded Age. My attitude was, I suppose, primarily formed by reading Victorian fiction. A recent expedition into British legal history has changed my attitude about both the purpose and the effects of the Cairns Acts. The facts, if I have them right, are these. Before 1926, you could not entail personal as opposed to real property in England. Until 1926, that is, entail was limited to the land, and it was not possible to entail personal possessions. There was, however, an exception to the pre-Cairnsian laws governing personal and real property certain kinds of personal property closely allied to the land could be attached to it as heirlooms and entailed as real property. Thus, one might entail the fish in the manor house pond or the deer in the park or the swans in the lake or the inherited furniture of the principal mansion house, furniture which might include books. In the 1880s, more than half the land of England was held in strict settlement. The intention of the subtle land acts of 1882 was to render such estates more profitable to their life tenants, that is, to those on whom they were entailed. Before the cluster of acts passed between 1882 and the end of the decade and associated with Lord Cairns, there were strict limitations on what the life tenant could do with the land. He could not sell it even if it lost money. He could not grant long leases, he could not generally exploit its mineral resources, and he had few incentives to improve the land itself, supposing he had the capital from external sources to do so, because he had insufficient control over the income arising from such improvements. The Act of 1882 gave the life tenant considerable powers over the management of his land while at the same time safeguarding capital. It facilitated the striking off from the land of fetters imposed by settlement and shifted the effect Of settlement from the land itself to the purchase money that might be obtained from it furthermore the life tenant could now sell heirlooms remember they were real not personal property in order to devote the money derived from their sale to improving the estate and releasing uh, other encumbrances upon it he could not simply sell the heirlooms and as we say in America buy fast women and slow horses with the proceeds (laughs) That is, he could not derive personal benefit from their sale, but he could arrange for the alienation of an unwanted and unproductive asset, exchanging it for one which did produce income. Before he could sell, he needed the permission of the court. The act did not set forth the principles which were to govern the court's discretion in allowing the sale of heirlooms. But in practice, the court tended to give the tenant for life wide discretionary powers in deciding upon such sales not all large family libraries in England in the 1880s were entailed, nor were they by any means exclusively owned by large landholders. But the long agricultural depression of the late 1870s had an obvious impact on industry and all sectors of society, particularly damaging at a time when English manufacturers were beginning to experience fierce competition from the newly industrialized continent. In the 1880s then, there were many incentives to sell books, in rapid succession occurred the Sunderland or Blenheim sale, 1881 to 83, the Beckford Hamilton Palace sales, 1882 83, <coughs> the Storehead Hoare sale, 1883 and then 1887, the Gosford and, and Syston Park sales, 1884, the Osterley Park sale, 1885, the First Phillips sales, 1886 to 89, the Severn sale, which included the library of Michael Woodle, 1886, Lord Crawford's sales of 1887 to 1889, and so on and on and on. The number of sales grossing 10,000 pounds or more in the single decade of the 80s was greater than the combined total of the previous six decades. And the sales as a whole put the largest number of certain kinds of books on the market since the bibliographical disruptions of the Napoleonic era. Now, the sales of the 1880s had a number of features in common. One, They tended to consist of libraries formed several generations earlier. In the early 18th century, for example, in the case of Sunderland, in the early 19th century, in the case of Beckford, heirlooms, in fact. Two, the libraries sold tended most notably to contain 15th century books, early editions of the classics, early English printing, including Caxton, and literature, including Shakespeare, as well as fine bindings. Three, the consigners tended to be substantial landholders whose incomes had been adversely affected by a grim succession of bad harvests in the second half of the 1870s, as well as by competition from American agriculture, and who took advantage of the changes effected by the Cairns Acts to improve their estates by cashing in heirlooms and converting the proceeds into income-producing assets. Four, the dominant presence at the sales in the 1880s was Bernard Quaritch. Who by now had many American clients interested in precisely the sort of book offered at these sales, and as a result, five, many of the books ended up either immediately or shortly thereafter in America. There were, of course, many other dealers at these sales besides Quaritch. They, too, had American customers. It had long been recognized in England that the Americans were virtually unbeatable in the field of Americana. Now, the Americans were everywhere in the market, not only in books, of course, but also, and indeed more importantly, if not to us, in pictures. American bibliographical avarice was broadly based. In 1896, W. Roberts observed in his book, Rare Books and Their Prices, that the Americans were also draining England of works relating to British genealogy and county history. A phenomenon was occurring, in fact, which has relatively few parallels in modern book-collecting history. The comprehensive and systematic collection by book collectors in one country of the literature and history of another. In looking at the collecting interests of late 19th and early 20th century American collectors, one is struck by the great number of them with a serious interest in English literature, history, and printing, especially of the 15th through 17th centuries, and again of the 19th and shortly thereafter the 20th. One thinks of Horace Furness, Robert Ho, Brayton Eyes, John Henry Wren. William A. White, Frederick Halsey, Alfred Chapin, Beverly Chew, William Bixby, Herschel V. Jones, John L. Clawson, and, and most importantly, that formidable trio, Henry Clay Folger, J. Pierpont Morgan, and, and Henry Huntington, with whom we arrive at the third generation of American book collectors. Folger began collecting seriously in the 1890s, as did Morgan, whose father had died in 1890. Huntington gathered steam a few years later, shortly after the turn of the century, the three men bought English literature by the cartload, libraries at a time. Folger bought the libraries of Marston Perry, much of which had come from Hallowell Phillips, Lord Warwick and important Shakespeare collections from the libraries of the Bishop of Truro, Lord Howe and William White. Pierpont Morgan bought the libraries of Theodore Irwin, eleven more Shakespeare quartos, Richard Bennett, William Morris's library, and Lord Amherst's Caxton's Henry Huntington brought, bought the libraries of Edwy Church, which included what Church had kept at the Rofant Library, the Bridgewater House Library, the English literature in the libraries of Beverly Chew and Frederick Halsey, plus important parts of the libraries of the Duke of Devonshire, the Earl of Pembroke, Sir Thomas Phillips, Alfred Christie Miller, Robert Ho, Ralph Ellsworth, and Otto Faubert. Folger, Morgan, and especially Huntington dominated the scene from the beginning of the 20th century to the Depression of the 1930s but there were many other notable American collectors of English literature and related subjects during this period. Beverly Chu, William Arnold, and George Armour, like Folger and Huntington, born in the 1850s. Daniel Updike, Frank Bemis, Herschel V. Jones, and Albert Bender, born in the 1860s. Albert Berg, A.S.W. Rosenbach, William Andrews Clark, Jr., and Carl Forzheimer, born in the 1870s. And Harry Elkins Widener and Jerome Kern, born in the 1880s. The collecting interests of the third great generation of American book collectors was broad and expanding in its scope. A. Edward Newton made 18th century English literature fashionable. John Quinn collected the manuscripts of living writers, such as Conrad and Joyce. Dr. Harving Cushing, following the lead of his mentor, Sir William Osler, collected the history of English medicine. David Smith collected the history of mathematics, to Columbia's profit. George Plimpton, the history of education, ditto. Harry Houdini assembled materials on magic and spiritualism. Arthur Schomburg put together the collections of black history, which are now the core of the New York Public Library Schomburg Center. Wilbur Macy Stone collected children's books. Catherine Bidding, cookbooks, and books about food. Her collection is now at L.C. The greatest sale of the period, if not indeed the greatest sale ever held in America, was that of the library of Robert Ho of New York, beginning in 1911. It was the first American sale to attract at least a very large number of English, of European dealers, and the nearly two million received remained the record for an American sale until after the Second World War. Henry Huntington dominated this sale, spending about a million dollars in all, or half of the total. His purchases at this and other sales, combined with other purchases of libraries in bulk, prompted several sales of Huntington duplicates in the mid-teens, sales held in New York, which fueled the ambitions of many other collectors who became active at this time, notably including William Clements, either directly or indirectly, through such dealers as A. S. W. Rosenbach, rapidly achieving an ascendant position in the American trade. Now, John Carter has pointed out that the trade in antiquarian books is sometimes identifiably cyclical. The Beckford, Sunderland, Syston Park, and other sales of the 1880s enabled a whole generation of collectors, including C. Fairfax Murray, Robert Ho, and Brayton Ives, whose books in turn became available eventually to Huntington and the third generation of American collectors. These cycles continue, however, only so long as the books remain in circulation. When they are institutionalized, the cycle stops. For the past century, one of the dominant patterns in the movement of books has been from English and continental dealers and auction sales to American collectors and then either directly or at one or two removes to American libraries. For several decades, especially after World War II, American libraries were very active as principals in the antiquarian book market both in England and uh, both in the United States and abroad. It remains the case that the most important source of rare books for practically all American libraries is gift, not purchase that this has always been the case with American libraries, even in the 1950s and the 1960s, and that it is still true today. Consider the book collector's problem. As Charles Tannenbaum once elegantly put it, collectors must eventually face their own inevitable personal (laughs) deaccession. The book collector has a choice. He can either make arrangements during his lifetime for the disposition of his treasures, or else he can bequeath them to his heirs, other individuals, or an institution. If he decides to alienate his collection during his lifetime, he again has two choices. He can either sell the collection or give it away. He may have one or more of many reasons for wishing to sell. He may simply need the money. The Brooklyn collector Thomas Field put together an important collection on the American Indian in the 1860s, for example, on which he based his excellent bibliographical writings on the subject, but his fortunes declined in the 1870s, and he was forced to sell his library at auction through Sabin. Another reason why a collector may need to sell books is so that he can pay his book bills, so that he can buy more books. This seems to have been the pattern employed on a number of occasions by Herschel Jones, who assembled and dispersed several libraries during his lifetime. Book collectors sometimes sell books simply because they need the room. The great St. Louis book collector, William K. Bixby, arranged two sales of duplicate sales, arranged two sales of duplicates with no less a partner than Henry Huntington in 1916 and 1917 for this reason. Sometimes a collector will sell his books to prove a point. William Arnold disposed of his collection of 19th century American first editions in original bindings at auction in New York in 1901. It was one of the first major sales of such materials to be held, and the prices set many new highs. Collectors sell their books because they have changed the focus of their collecting interests. Charles Fedrickson collected Shakespeare after the American Civil War until he became convinced that the plays were in fact written by someone else. He then sold his Shakespeare, and in the 1870s began to collect 19th century English literature, including Keats, Coleridge, and Shelley. He was one of the first Americans to do so. Similarly, in 1900, Beverly Chew sold his collection of American literature to Jacob Chamberlain so that he could concentrate exclusively, or more exclusively, on English literature. This collection, in turn, went to Huntington in 1912. Sometimes a collector sells his books because he loses interest in book collecting altogether. Jerome Kern sent his books to auction in 1929 for this reason, through good luck or astuteness hitting the top of the market just before the crash. A collector may sell his books because his heirs have no interest in the collection or because he believes that he can get more for the books than his spouse or children could after his death. William Menzies put his collection up for sale in 1876 for this reason, nearly 30 years before he died. Some collectors sell their books, as did Menzies, long before they die. Others arrange for a posthumous sale. The Boston banker Frank Bemis bequeathed the proceeds from the sale of his library of English and American literature. They went to Rosenbach in 1835 to the Boston Children's Hospital. Perhaps the most frequently cited reason for planning a sale of one's books is to give other collectors the chance to enjoy collecting the books that gave their owners so much pleasure to keep the game alive. Robert Ho and A. Edward Newton, among many others, made elaborate statements to this effect. Related to this conviction is a suspicion that institutions do not take as good care of books as individuals do. There was widespread dismay, for example, when the Lennox Library was amalgamated into the newly formed New York Public Library in the 1890s and its identity submerged in a way that would surely have much irritated James Lennox. Once forever, f- for whatever reason, a collector has decided to sell his books. Yet again, he has a number of options. He can sell his books privately to another individual, as Edward Assay did to Thomas Irwin in 1881, and as Irwin in turn did to Pierpont Morgan in 1900. The collector can sell his collection to his, or a, dealer, as did the heirs of Frank Bemis, or he can give them to a dealer on consignment, as did uh, Clarence Bement to the infant A.S.W. Rosenbach as a form of encouragement to a new dealer. He can sell them to an institution, as did Peter Force to the Library of Congress. And he can sell them either at full price or, as in the case of Owen D. Young, to Dr. Albert Berg at a substantial discount because the Berg collection was to go to the New York Public Library. And finally, a book collector can sell his books at auction. Either through private or public transaction, the collector has a variety of ways of selling his books during his lifetime. The other major option that a collector has in disposing of his books is to give them away either before or after his death. He may, of course, simply leave them to his heirs, though though there are relatively few instances, at least in America, of much interest by the heirs in such collections. The collector may therefore decide to give or leave his books to an institution, an intention which is likely to be warmly encouraged by the institution itself. Most American institutions are of relatively recent formation, And a lack of books is the most obvious problem facing a newly established library. Harvard itself got its start in the 1630s, when one John Harvard gave a gift of money in his library to establish the college. Poverty of local library resources prompted James Logan to bequeath his substantial collection to the city of Philadelphia. George Tickner gave many of his books to the Boston Public Library over the first two decades of its existence. Adolph Sutro intended to establish a great research library on the European model for the citizens of San Francisco. Henry Huntington had much the same idea for Southern California, and rather better luck. Many book collectors have been employees of libraries or universities and often they presented their institutions with their personal collections, either by gift or bequest. Daniel Willard Fisk gave a major portion of his extensive collections of Italian literature to Carnell. David Smith was a professor at Columbia who gave his great mathematics collections to us. James Babb, librarian at Yale, presented that university with its Beckford collection. Other donors have been trustees of their institutions. Henry F. Durant of Wellesley, Cyrus McCormick of Princeton, John G. White, of the Cleveland Public Library. American donors have presented or bequeathed their collections to their colleges or universities for many reasons, not least of which is simply that they were asked to do so. In 1924, for example, Chauncey Brewster Tinker put forth a celebrated and enormously successful call to the Yale alumni for gifts of rare books Responses came from Harvard Cushing, Wilmarth Lewis, Richard Gimbel, David Wagstaff, and Frederick Dixon, among many others. A collector may give books to an institution in order to establish a monument to himself or to others. William Andrews Clark Jr.'s collections at UCLA are a memorial to his father, a man of the same name. George Herbert Palmer gave his collection of 19th century English poetry to Wellesley in memory of his wife, Alice Freeman, who had been president of that college. William Loring Andrews gave his 15th century books, many of them acquired at the 1886 Severn sale, to Yale in memory of his son. In the 1930s, Mr. and Mrs. Howard Chapin established the splendid Peter Chapin collection of books on dogs at the College of William and Mary in memory of their beloved cocker spaniel Peter the first curator was a man named Shepard, I kid you not. The memorial may be to the collection itself, the John Carter Brown Library at Brown University being perhaps the most obvious example, but there are others. The remarkable Browning Collection at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, for example, as much or more a shrine as it is a collection of books and the equally remarkable monument to Francis Bacon as author of Shakespeare and otherwise, established by Walter Ahrensberg at the Claremont Colleges. Sometimes the donor wishes to influence educational policy. Alexander Smith Cochran gave his important collection of Shakespeare folios and quartos to establish at Elizabethan Club at Yale, where students could meet for literary conversation amidst congenial surroundings. Alfred Chapin assembled a collection of the written monuments of American and European civilization and presented it to Williams College so that its students would have the opportunity to see the original forms of such books. Sometimes the gift of the collection is directly attached to the gift of the collector. William A. Speck became curator of German literature at Yale when he transferred his Goethe collections to New Haven in 1912. Re- Ralph Ellis went with his ornithological collection to the University of Kansas. Philip Hofer and his great graphic arts collections together ornamented the Houghton Library at Harvard. Sometimes a collector gives his books to a library as a token of gratitude. Lessing J. Rosenwald presented his wonderful collection of illustrated books to the Library of Congress in thanks to the nation, which which had enabled him to amass his substantial fortune. Sometimes the collector may place materials in an institution where it is especially appropriate As did the Wren family when it gave the University of Texas at Austin the extensive correspondence between John Henry Wren and T.J. Wise, not included in the original purchase. Or similarly, when Mrs. Frederick Meek presented her husband's collection of John Greenleaf Whittier, the most complete in private hands, to Whittier College in Los Angeles. On occasion, material goes to an institution because the owner believes it should be in public rather than private hands. In 1949, Fritz Kreisler gave the score of Brahms' Violin Concerto to the Library of Congress so that it could become a public treasure always available for use internationally. Regional history collections are often given locally because of the appropriateness of the subject. Thus, the Burton Collection of Midwestern Materials, now at the Detroit Public Library, and William Darlington's collection of materials on the history of Pittsburgh, presented by his heirs to the university in that city. A more generalized civic pride may cause the gift of a collection. Philadelphians Hampton Carson and William Elkins gave their history and literature collections to the Free Library of Philadelphia because of their love of that city. Some collectors have formed collections for the express purpose of donating them to an institution. Albert Bender, for example, established rare book libraries at Mills College, Stanford, and the University of California at Berkeley. A generation later, in 1942, and again at, Harving, at Harvard, William King Richardson gave his important collections of illustrated books and bindings to the university to mark the opening of the Houghton Library. Sometimes a collector presents a collection to an institution because he fears for the book's safety at home. Morris Parrish had such high standards for the collection, for the condition of the Victorian writers he collected that he added the term parish condition to the vocabulary of the antiquarian book trade. After a fire in his house threatened the condition of his books, however, parish made arrangements to transfer the collections to Princeton. Gifts to institutions are sometimes the result of friendships which develop between collectors and librarians. Clara Peck and Kathleen Bryson, the librarian of Transylvania College in Lexington, Kentucky, were friends, Ms. Peck's celebrated sporting collections went after her death to Transylvania. Similarly, the friendship between John L. Perkins and Dorothy Drake, librarian at Scripps, one of the Claremont Colleges, resulted in his fine printing and related collections going to the Honnold Library. On occasion, a collector gives his collection to an institution to avoid personal bankruptcy. Thomas Gilcrease went deeply into debt in assembling his important collection of books, paintings, and artifacts on the American Indian. The citizens of Tulsa, Oklahoma, voted a bond issue to buy the collections and set up a museum in that city and pay Gilcrease's debts. And, and finally, sometimes a donor gives his library to an institution for tax reasons, because it is impossible for tax reasons not to. I shall return to this shortly. But first I need to catch up with another one of my options for the disposition of a collection, that which operates when a collection is left in the family or where, for other reasons, it devolves upon another individual. The new possessor must, like the old one, decide whether to retain the collection, sell it, or give it away. The heirs of E. Dwight Church sold his library to Henry Huntington, Norton Q. Pope, Sold his wife Abby Pope's books en bloc to Dodd Mead after her early death. Dodd Mead, in turn, sold most of them, including the Caxton Mallory, to Robert Ho. The inheritors of a collection have many good reasons for selling it, as opposed to giving it away or keeping it in the family. They may need the money. And whether they need the money or not, they may firmly believe that the money foolishly spent in making the collection should be redeemed and put to better purposes. Collections are sometimes sold in ways which honor the informally known wishes of the collector. In 1873, Thomas Barton's widow put his Shakespeare collection up for sale, but he had wanted the collection kept together, and she eventually reduced the price in order that it could go to the Boston Public Library. The great series of Brindley sales, beginning in 1879, were conducted with the provision that five institutions would receive sums varying from $2,500 to $10,000 with which to bid at the sales. Sometimes the disposition of a library is left to a trust, which goes into operation upon the death of the collector. In this way, Milbert Carey's collection of playing cards went to Yale, and many of Elizabeth Ball's children's books went to Indiana University. On occasion, the heirs present the collector's books to an institution as a memorial to the deceased, as did Mrs. Widener after the death of her son Harry Elkins Widener in the sinking of the Titanic, as did Horace Furness, Jr., the library of his father, the editor of the Shakespeare Variorum. Heirs are, in fact, at least as likely as the collectors themselves to give their collections to institutions. And it has certainly been the case in the United States for the past 80 years or so that books have tended to gravitate by gift towards institutions. I have myself visited all of the collections which I have uh, thus far described, and I assure you that there are a great many other institutional collections and rationales for them which I could have mentioned. But I must now turn to what I believe to be the biggest reason of all, and one which came into existence with the changes in the American income tax laws which occurred in 1917. The United States had levied an income tax during its Civil War with a maximum rate of 10%, but I am happy to inform you that the United States government ran a surplus every year without exception from 1866 until well into the 1890s and that the income tax was repealed in 1872. The chief source of revenue for the government was then customs duties and taxes on alcohol and tobacco. With the Depression of the mid-1890s, an attempt was made to reinstitute the income tax, but the US Supreme Court ruled that federal income taxes were unconstitutional. Their matters stood until 1913, when income taxes were permanently enabled by an amendment to the US Constitution and reimposed in that year. The original intention of the reimposition was to tax only the rich and them only slightly. The 1913 income tax levy affected only those with annual incomes in excess of $3,000, that is, in the neighborhood of at least $45,000 in today's values, and the maximum tax was 7%, this only for those whose annual income was in excess of half a million dollars a year. In today's terms, that is, an annual income of in excess of $8 million a year. This rate, by the way, was slightly lower than the approximately 8% upper limit levied in England at the time. John D. Rockefeller opposed income taxes, saying that when a man has accumulated a sum of money within the law, that is to say, in the legally correct way, the people no longer have any right to share in the earnings resulting from the accumulation. But by mid-1913, J. Pierpont Morgan was now dead, and Rockefeller's advice was ignored, both by the U.S. Congress and by the states. And a good thing, too, since U.S. customs duties sank rapidly after 1914 because of the international situation, and the government was in desperate need of operating funds, a need made still greater by the country's decision to rearm the income tax began being used as the primary device for increasing government revenue. The Revenue Act of 1916 raised the income tax rate substantially, and the 1917 Act added further sharp increases, especially at the upper levels, increasing the maximum rate to 67% of income for those, admittedly, with annual incomes in excess of a million dollars, say, $14 by today's standards. This rate was so high a change from 7% to 67% in four years. That there is considerable fear in the United States Congress that private philanthropy would suffer. And so, and for the first time in 1917, deductions to one's gross annual income were allowed for gifts to charitable, religious, scientific, and educational institutions. Deductions that were expanded with the 1918 Revenue Act, which raised the upper limit of income taxation still further to 77%. For the next half-century, the top rates stayed at 50% or higher, climbing to an all-time high of 94% in 1944. The rich were, to be sure, not without their resources in protecting the disposition of their incomes from such punishing tax levels. To the extent that they chose to make charitable contributions, the federal government simply became their partners. In the 50% exemption bracket, the donor pays half and the government the other half in the seventy percent bracket the donor pays less than a third but this is less than a third of the gifts present value not the cost of the original purchase the result is that it may finally be cheaper to give away a collection of books to an institution than it is to sell it especially if the collection was acquired many years before and prices have risen since then either in fact or because of inflationary pressures an example may be illustrative mister Mr. X formed his great collection of high spot first editions in the Depression, buying wisely at such sales as those of Mortimer Schiff and A. Edward Newton, when prices were low. In 1974, Mr. X, feeling the weight of his now more than 87 years, decided to dispose of his collections. A book dealer immediately offered to pay him $400,000 for them, an amount which rather staggered Mr. X, who had been out of the market for more than two decades. Years before, he had paid a total of only about $40,000 for the books. His capital gains on the collection, if he sold it for $400,000, would be $360,000. With a 25% capital gains tax, Mr. X would face a tax bill of $90,000 on the sale. If he sold, his profit on the whole transaction then would be the $400,000 he would receive for the collection from the dealer minus a $90,000 tax bill and also minus the 40000 he originally paid for the books, a net profit of $270,000. But Mr. X was a rich man <clears throat> in a 70% tax bracket at the time that we're speaking. He discovered that if he gave his collection over a period of several years to an institution, the actual cost of the gift to him would be its original cost of 400,000, excuse me, its original cost of 40,000 plus 30% of its current 400,000 value, $120,000, for a total of $160,000, since he would be relieved of the burden of paying $280,000 in income tax over the period of the gift. It would then cost him $160,000 to make a gift worth well over twice that amount to, say, his alma mater, an institution he had in any event planned to remember generously in his will. As it happened, in fact, the rare book librarian of his alma mater was able to point out to Mr. X that while the book dealer had offered him $400,000 for the collection, its present replacement value was in fact much higher. A second perfectly reputable appraiser was discovered who was willing for tax purposes to appraise the collection at $600,000. The cost of the gift to Mr. X would then be his original 40,000, for which in return, he would be relieved of the necessity of paying 70 percent of the 600,000 value, or 420,000 dollars. Net profit, 230,000 dollars, or only 90,000 less than that which he would receive had he sold the collection outright to the dealer of 400. In short, presenting his alma mater with a collection worth well over half a million dollars would cost him less than one-fifth of that amount. Accordingly, Mr. X gave the collection to his old college, where it is now one of the permanent glories of the rare book department. Now, I have not used in preparing this example the example of Mr. Lilly, but it is a very instructive one because he was prevented, though he very much wished, to put his books back into the trade from doing so because of the great expense. The arithmetic of the U.S. income tax uh, laws since 1917 has thus consistently encouraged giving book collections, especially long-established ones, to educational institutions. It would be virtually impossible to determine the extent that tax law encouragement alone has resulted in such gifts, for there are a great many other reasons, as I have suggested earlier, which may contribute to a collector's decision to present his books to an institution. What can be determined is the approximate percentage of collectors who given... Uh, uh, let me start again. Who, what can be determined is the approximate percentage of collectors during any given time period who sold their collection as opposed to the percentage of those who during the same period gave them away. In order to do so, I used a database using DBase3 software of about 375 American book collectors, deriving my raw data. In the first instance, from Cannon's American Book Collectors, and with additions from more recent sources, in particular my own notes, and then Donald Dickinson's 1986 book, Dictionary of American Book Collectors. Determining the birth and death dates of these collectors was, for the most part, routine. Establishing whether they sold or gave away their collections was considerably more tricky, the more so in that about a quarter of them either did both, selling some and giving some, or neither in that they simply left their collections to their heirs. But the three quarters who clearly did either sell or give to institutions provide plenty of evidence to work with, and in fact certain patterns emerge as follows. Of those book collectors born in the decade of the 1820s, that is, collectors who might generally be expected to have disposed of their collections 60 or 70 years later, toward the end of the 19th century, Sixty-seven percent, two-thirds, sold their collections, and eleven percent gave them away. The others um, had a combination. Of those born in the 1830s, fifty-three sold and twenty-six percent gave. Of those born in the 1840s, forty-three percent sold and thirty-one gave. Of those born in the 1850s, forty-one percent sold and fifty percent gave. In the 1860s, thirty-nine percent sold and forty-seven percent gave of those born in the 1870s twenty three percent sold and sixty two percent gave of those born in the eighteen eighties twenty seven and fifty nine of those born in the eighteen nineties four percent sold and eighty one percent gave to repeat the percentages of those who gave their collections to institution decade by decade beginning with those born in the eighteen twenties are eighteen twenties eleven percent 1830s, 26%, 1840s, 31%, 1850s, 50%, 1860s, 47%, 1870s, 62%, 1880s, 59%, 1890s, 81%. At the moment, my data stop with the generation born in the 1890s. Some of these collectors are, I am happy to say, still with us, and interpreting the data of those collectors born after 1900 is difficult because many members of their generation are still active and in any event have not disposed of their collections. But the trend is overwhelmingly clear. More and more American book collectors gave their collections away rather than selling them. My data almost certainly exaggerates the facts to some extent. I am most likely to have data on collectors whose collections are fairly well known, and as a result, I know more about collections that were presented with more or less fanfare to an institution accompanied by a trail of exhibitions, catalogs, and news reports than I am about collectors who quietly sold, for example, their collections to a dealer or who put them up anonymously at auction. But even making very substantial allowances for the skew in my data, the sequence of the percentage of givers, decade by decade, is suggestive 11 26 31 50, 47, 62 59, 81. is it I wonder all a matter of public policy beginning in the 1880s changes in British tax law encouraged the owners of libraries to disperse them at a time when Americans were beginning to collect heavily precisely the kind of books that were being sold off there ensued a golden age of American book collecting between 1876 and 1917 beginning in 1917, changes in the American tax law encouraged the owners of libraries to give them as charitable contributions to institutions. And so they did, and so they do. Thank you very much. I hope you'll all join us for a reception in 523 b